Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting episode. Uh, we have with us today Alex Boazes, uh, co-founder and CEO of Deal. I want to get right into it because we have a lot to unpack here today and a lot of ground to cover. Uh, Alex and what he's building and what they've been been through is really remarkable and interesting and at the heart of you know a lot of what a lot of companies have been were going through for the last few years. So, Alex, before we you know get going. Who are you and what is Deal? Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me. I've listened to this podcast many times, so it's an honor to be here. Um, I'm Al- yeah, uh, I'm Alex. I'm originally French, uh, Israeli. I am the founder and CEO of Deal. And Deal is a company that built the infrastructure for you to be global. We built the first full-stack HR solution for companies to truly have international teams, manage them, and give them an amazing experience. So, yeah. A lot of things to unpack in this. I know we're going to dive into a lot of what, what that means uh, um, um, because you know, it's something I actually learned a lot about, uh, you, know, w- you know, working with you over the last uh, year or so. But before that, we are recording this uh, the weekend after all things Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, I know you folks kind of really sprung into action and kind of an interesting moment for you. So we don't maybe start with explain to us how you know you saw events play out you know last thursday friday over the weekend um and what transpired from your yeah of course this chain of events and you know deal we work in the payroll space and we have 450 plus bank accounts so you know uh, we work very closely with banks and payroll infrastructure and payments infrastructure so you know very close to to what we do in general I was flying out from Paris to Tel Aviv actually on Thursday when I had a chat with my director of finance and I was like, are, are we okay? Like everything on the SVB side, are we fine? She's like, yeah, we closed our account two weeks ago. We're fine. You can take your flight. You'll, you'll be okay. Um, so I kind of went on with my life and I was like, ah, oh, you know, there's a lot of companies there. We, let's see what happens. We want to be sure we're, we're ready to help if something happens. And kind of went on with my life to be completely honest. Like I was just trying to see what was going to happen and it was really hard to understand what the future was going to hold on that front. The day after, you know, things got a little worse on the SVB side, and we realized a lot of our customers were banking with SVB. Primarily what Deal did until recently, we were very focused on international only, right? We help companies go global, hire internationally, um, you know, working with some of you know, 18 plus thousand customers from small companies all the way to Nike or Subway. So we, we, you know, we felt pretty comfortable that at the beginning, we would it wasn't going to have a big effect on, on, on how we were going to run payroll and helping companies. And then a few things unfolded. First, a lot of companies started realizing they weren't going to have the cash to run payroll at all. Um, so we had a lot of people start ping, pinging us and saying, look, my funds are completely locked in SVB. I don't know how I'm going to pay my team. And they, are, they need to be paid on the 15th of the month, right? Second, uh, you know, a few companies in the market, without naming any, used SVB as an infrastructure bank. And suddenly had a lot of fun stuck in there, right? So they pulled the funds on Friday morning, like they always did. And suddenly I think there was 500 plus million dollars in transit that were stuck there. And a lot of companies came to us and said, well, my funds are there. They're frozen. I don't know what to do. And I need to pay my US team. Like, what do I need to do? And funnily enough, Deal actually, we actually launched our product to help with US payroll on the Friday, on the, on the, in January. So a lot of companies came to us and said, we need to run US payroll. Like, you know, we need help paying our employees, which actually wasn't our specialty, right? Like we entered the market about two months ago. It was kind of like a baptism by fire, right? Like a lot of companies came to us and said, we need help. Help us pay our people. And we spent the whole weekend literally just paying people, uh, which was pretty crazy. 
but we work really closely with you guys. So I don't want to spoil the whole thing, right? Like we actually work with Basics and Z quite a bit on making this happen too. You know, I think it is fairly dramatic uh, few days for everybody. And, uh, you know, someday we should really kind of tell the story from uh, the Asics side of things too. But, you know, I think what a lot of people may not realize is how stressful it is to be a founder. You think you have ample cash in the bank, you, you know, you're not even thinking about something like payroll. Um, and all of a sudden, somewhat randomly go to a situation where, oh, wait, I may not have the cash to pay people on Monday. And just for context, right, this is actually very serious on multiple levels. Like, first of all, you have a lot of people who expect to get paid and they want to make rent and they have expenses. I mean, this is, you know, you, you want money to show up in your bank account and you have a lot of employees who really rely on that. Just It's just, you know, that's super important. That's one really part of it. The second part of it is in California and other states, there's some real legal consequences uh, if you don't pay your employees. And yeah, uh, I mean, in general, you're not going to be able to retain employees if you're not going to pay them then you are in this position of like uh being or if you're an employee you're doing the work but you're not getting paid for it and it has legal ramifications also if you're looking at it as like a these are not like really big established companies there are some there in that bucket but a lot of these are like you know 10 20 30 person startups small companies business and it's not even like tech startups you're looking at you know i was reading yesterday about like a bunch of farms that got affected uh northern california because they're all banked with svb and they all have you know this is spring season this is like farming season so they have to like you know rely on funds and so you see a lot of like these just downstream impact on all of these where employees can't like make rent or can't get paid and uh it just becomes this really big problem uh, because of the fact that you rely on a bank to do the one thing that the bank does where you put in money and you hope that, you know, it's a, it's a deposit that you, they will hold safe. This is not some like big risky bet that you're making with the amount that you've like raised. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy to see how many players in the market were relying on SVB as well. Right. The impact it had from, of course, it's super stressful. Like, you know, you, your employees are the heart of your company. And actually I was surprised how many very large companies were affected by this because, you know, I was expecting a lot of startups to come our way, but, we saw big, big companies being being stuck on that front, which was very surprising to us for sure. And I remember, so, you know, co- calling a couple of our investors that day, so just to close it up and saying, hey guys, we're here. We can run your spirit. We can help companies. A lot of companies are familiar with us and, and we kind of want to show up and be there for them. And that's when kind of everything kind of unfolded over the, the weekend. We helped quite a few companies run payroll. We had to figure out from a legal perspective, like, you know, we're, we're not at all the bank from a regulation perspective. How can we help them run payroll if they don't have the cash available? So, Kind of did everything we could, and uh, you know, with the help of uh, our investors, we we figured out a, a great way to help. And yeah, we ended up running payroll for our companies and uh, bring up about 120 million plus dollars in cash from our from our balance sheet in order to be able to do so. So it was a uh, rallied the team really well, and uh, we were very excited to help. And we didn't do as much as we wanted, but we did. Thank you. I think it was a. I know a lot of founders appreciated what you folks did, and uh, you know, and hopefully, you know, hopefully, we don't have to go through one of these things again. But uh, thanks so much. Now, you know, that's really it. Doesn't need you know. I think as people might have figured out from what you're talking about, like what you folks do is really the heart of how companies uh, wind up paying, interacting with employees. But the heart of what you folks do is usually help people with uh, employees and contractors in other countries. So I want to maybe kind of turn the clock back a bit. Uh, and talk to us a little bit about, uh, you know, maybe, you know, your origin story and maybe the origin story of Deal. I was originally born in France. 
Uh, I moved to Israel to do my BA to the US for my master's and eventually started a PhD in the UK. Although that didn't work out, I eventually dropped out. Um, and my co-founder, um, yeah, she's really great. You should really have her on. She was originally from China, is originally from China and moved to the US in order to to go through school and did side jobs in order to pay her way for school. And I think throughout our careers in our life, uh, we were always exposed to some of the most talented people in the world. And we realized that not being in Palo Alto actually caused them a lot. And, and, you know, not having the right opportunities or having to move for those opportunities was very, very common. And that didn't really feel fair, right? I remember some of the brightest people I knew going back to their home country, Albania or Croatia, where they were paid 500 bucks a month while some of my other friends went to the Bay Area and were paid a lot of money uh, by you know, some of the stripes or dislikes of the word uh, because they could. That's kind of how we understood that there was something to shape up. And uh, in 2019, that's when we started Deal, right? With the very concept of these hundreds of millions of people that are super talented around the world. How do we help them work for the best companies in the world, right? How do we empower companies so they feel comfortable hiring regardless of location and being more focused on talent? And and that's really Deal's origin story. You know, one of the things which really strikes me about, you know, you folks is that uh, I think there are a lot of companies uh, which you know, either were started during the pandemic or really kind of grew during the pandemic. And in some ways, I think like deal story uh, is intermingled with that of the pandemic um, because people were like, hey, I'm going to hire more people remotely or people are just going to work from homes. I am curious about how much do you think uh, the pandemic kind of shifted the way people work? And I guess for, the, for the quick background for the audience that don't know deal, what we, today we are a full stack HR solution, but we what we're known for is helping you hire where you don't have people in the location or infrastructure in the location or helping you run global payroll. So you're a U.S. company, you want to hire your first person in Singapore, in Japan, in the Philippines. You want to hire them as a contractor or as an employee. We'll do all of that for you and we'll have all of that infrastructure, 100 plus entities around the world to do so. Or if you want to open your own entity, then we'll run payroll for you. So really, you know, our, our, the reason we're here is to really help you start to go global. And when I think of the pandemic, I think there's a few things that it helped us with. Uh, obviously, you know, we believed in the business much before, right? And, and this idea since, uh, I mean, I always believed in this idea. And starting in 2019, I think we had a good year of head start to, for what came uh, from, from 2020. I think the two things that it really helped, obviously the first one is we had a bit more PR around us so as being a company that's focused on helping companies manage their distributed teams and going, and going distributed and remote. But I think the most important part is throughout the pandemic, leaders in the HR department truly understood that no matter where people are, they need to be treated in a fair way. And employee experience needs to be even all over the world, right? Before, you know, people used to give an amazing experience in the US, so many benefits, but your team that wasn't outside of the, was outside of the US just wouldn't get as much, right? When everybody was not in the office, right? Everybody was uh, all over the world. You know, you realize like the the equity needs to happen there, right? You need parity and you need to give great experience to people. And I think that was really the biggest catalyst for us in general, like that realization that you want to give great experiences to all, to people all over the world. I think for uh, me and Shriram, we started our careers at Microsoft uh, way back in the day. Like even a year before we graduated from college, Microsoft kind of recruited us. So we were kind of an anomaly there. The youngest PMs working in uh, India, and so we worked away from like the, the mothership, which was Redmond. And so that was kind of our experience for the first couple of years. And to your point, you could really feel it to be like, what does it mean to be a remote employee 
and in our case, Microsoft India was a massive, massive entity organization. But even so, the teams that we worked on and the com- the products that we worked on, we were kind of this like extension. So we were like a few people, like a five, six, ten people team that were working on these products here. So time zone difference, everything else. But we also looked at it as like, how do we feel like what does it mean for us to have an equal stakeholder status in this company, in this product, in this business? And uh, I think what Deal does is I bridge that gap in a really effective way because uh, you no longer feel like you're just an extension of this main mothership. It's like, no, there is no one central entity. You can all be distributed and you can all just bring in the best people, do the best work out of anywhere you have, anywhere you are. And that I think is really powerful. It's very rare that people work like from India. I mean, in, there's a huge team in India, Microsoft, but have the opportunity to work on some of the products you did, right? And really, you would have had to move there. And, you know, I'm thinking about all the people that had to move away from their family, not by choice, uh, in order to have this type of opportunities. And this is really what we want to democratize. And, you know, this is really like the reason, the core reason deal exists. This is actually an interesting question because, uh, over the years, I think we've all heard a couple of themes. One is Silicon Valley or in a couple of other places in, in the US or on the world are the places you need to be if you want to you know, be in tech. Uh, they have the locus of talent. What we also know is there are amazing engineers um, and product builders, just for technology companies, obviously for other domains is different, um, who are spread out all over the world. I mean, obviously we come from media, humongous community there, lots of other parts of the world. And there's always been a question of, well, why are people sometimes, for example, complain about higher compensation, you know, higher things that, you know, maybe the coddled employees of San Francisco want, while you might have an amazing 23-year-old engineer from India or Eastern Europe or anywhere in the world, really, who can do that. You know, I see you folks as being one part of the answer, which is, okay, you can now have those folks in the other parts of the world have, you know, kind of a similar experience. But I am curious about why the difference exists. And do you think that is going to change where companies go, oh, you know what, I can now look for talent I all over the th- world. I think there's been a mindset shift. Like if you were talking to investors 10 years ago, or even five years ago, you'd have told them, I have a team in India, I have a team in, the U- in Ukraine, they would have told you, oh, you're outsourcing your tech, right? I've heard that so many times. But, but that has completely changed, right? The mindset of people now, oh, is you have a global team. Oh, you are actually maybe more cash efficient than hiring 500k engineers in the Valley, right? Um, so that's, that's the one thing that uh, I think has changed, right? And has made a significant difference. The fact that it has become more and more accepted. And, you know, it's, it's, it's always been there to some extent, right? Like a ton of Israeli companies I know had huge offices in Ukraine, right? Uh, and it was like a, their second headquarter and they heavily hired in the country. So they were starting to leverage international talent and maybe in some in some countries, because Israel has very expensive engineers, right? More affordable talent. But they were always going like very, very into a country, right? Opening an office and hiring thousands and thousands of people instead of having a broader talent pool and looking for talent everywhere. When I was preparing for this, uh, I was asking around for uh, things to ask you. And somebody told me this, and I don't know if it's true, but, you know, but I'm curious, Katie, that you've never, ever worked in an office. Is that true? And if so, why? I've never worked in an office because when I dropped out of my PhD, I started to build my first company. Um, and, you know, I, I went to a co-working space a couple of times, but, uh, you know, an, ex- an office is expensive, so <laughs> couldn't really afford one. And I only built companies. I've never worked for like a large company before, for any company before, apart from, from mine. So I never had the chance to work in an office. Never had to. And what about now? I mean, I'm curious, like, uh, why not now? I suspect you folks can probably afford an office now. 
I like the idea of being able to work from anywhere, really, and just being able to put my laptop in the morning and just crack on and start going and start working. We do give the ability for people to uh, have a WeWork membership and then they can work from anywhere they want. And we see a lot of culture being, you know, driven there and people meeting in the same WeWork if they need that separation. But, you know, I think at my, I'm still, uh, you know, I don't have kids and I can just uh, stay and work at home and be very focused at the same time. And it's, it's just the environment that I feel the most productive in. And, you know, when I need to work somewhere, I'll go crush my friend's office. Or I'll go to a WeWork or I'll go to the coffee shop and that works best for me. And, I just feel so much more productive. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to take the subway 45 plus minutes every day uh, morning and then 45 minutes at night to go to school. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe that impacted me <laughs> and I don't want to do it anymore. You're totally right. Like for me, I feel like this is almost a contrarian take now. You can no longer say it. But for me, remote work has been incredibly like personally productive, mostly because, you know, I don't have the commute. I don't have to think about that. Like, you know, I'd... Uh, last few years I used to work at Facebook and so Facebook was based in Menlo Park we live in San Francisco it's like on a good day it's like an hour each way on a bad day it was like two hours each way today I cannot think about four hours of every day being on a bus being on a car being in a shuttle just commuting uh, and not being able to like do stuff like whatever that stuff might be it may be work may not be work but you know not having the choice to go do something else it just blows my mind and now I feel like I spend uh, I spend more hours being focused. I am way closer to my kids and family and everything. So when I need to, I can switch out and do stuff and then come back. And it's great. Like, I love remote work. And I feel like the pandemic for me has been like a blessing in disguise yeah. uh, to just like get things done faster. Yeah, but there is a flip side to this because and I'm curious to get your take, Alex, which is kind of where I was going with this, which is uh, I think a lot of companies have have realized that Culture in the remote work world is very different, maybe, than culture in an office environment. And some companies have made the transition. Um, some companies have struggled. Uh, one theory I've heard is if you're in the earliest stages of a company, it is much easier when everybody's in the same room and eating pizza. On the other hand, if you have people who are remote, you can get access to talent. There's a lot in there to unpack. Um, now, the big companies who have tens of thousands of employees, that's a different situation, which you can leave aside. But I'm curious because you folks yourself have basically scaled from zero to one during the pandemic, all remote. And you talk to a lot of founders, you work with a lot of companies who have made that shift remote and some who have not. What does it take to build culture that works over a remote environment and scale that? Generally, early stage, uh, there is value into being together. So Shu and I were working together, the rest of our team wasn't. And there was value into that to quickly iterate through things. Um, but at the same time, if we would have put everybody together, I wouldn't have my two amazing engineers in Ukraine, my content marketer in Serbia, and my designer in the UK. And that was our initial team. And I think YC money was the first money we, we kind of got. So it would have, uh, it would have been really hard to, uh, to hire four people that way at the time uh, with, with that budget. I think when it comes to building culture, there's a few things first. There's a lot to unpack here. The first one is the most important part is trust, right? So if you want to build a, a remote company, and I think I, I'm, we might be wrong on that, but we think we're the largest at this private company that's distributed, we're 2,500 people across 100 countries. Um, so yeah, we have a little bit of experience there and we're trying to, to, to help other companies kind of learn from the mistakes we make. Being very, very focused on trust and my default mindset is I trust people and then it's for them to lose rather than you have to earn it. Uh, so that works really well in that environment because if you empower people, you give them your trust, uh, then 
and you focus on the output more than on the inputs, then you're going to get the best out of people, right? And I think most companies that are able to put this, regardless of the stage in place, are the ones that are going to be the most successful remotely. And I think it does depend also, by the way, on the founders and, and the, C, the C-level, right? Like the team in general, I think most companies will end up picking the right framework for them based on what the, the executive team likes to do, right, in terms of work, right? So that's another another thing as well. But But generally, I think... You need to understand the pros and cons of running a distributed business. And then if you want to run a distributed business, a remote company, you got to invest in it. And I think that's that's one of the most important things, right? Like building the right policies around it, building the right frameworks to make people comfortable. And I think we're very far from where we need to be, but at least the foundation of it is there. I'm curious, is there like a specific tip, you know, like make these kinds of Slack posts or do this kind of meeting that you wind up, you know, you now know that you didn't realize when you were starting off? I think over-communication is very important. And that's something I'm not really good at, to be really honest, and something I need to work on. And I, I think most founders are that way as well. Like, uh, I keep a lot of things in my head, and I assume people know. And, uh, you know, when you're 5, 10 people, and you talk to them often, it's okay. But when there's uh, 100, 200, 500 people, then uh, over-communicating is something that I had not planned was going to be so critical. When you start having assumptions and doubts, like in a remote and distributed teams, then that's when things really go wrong, because you're not in the same building to help each other get through things. Um, so that's something like I, I had to work on quite a bit, for sure. And that was surprising to me because it wasn't obvious. Let's put it that way. Alex, uh, in a recent podcast, I think with uh, Stebbings, um, there was one part that made me all like light up and really smile, uh, which is your 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 conversation on uh, Savage Founders. And uh, it's by far my favorite part. Um, Shriram knows this. Um, he thinks of me as like one of the most aggressive people he's met. I really like working with that archetype of founders. And, I, you know, there's a whole community. You're from YC, I'm from YC. And we all, you know, there are these tribes of people who are kind of similar to each other, focusing on the output, focusing on outcomes um, and figuring out like what needs to happen to get this company to be successful. What is a, in your definition, what is a savage or a savage founder? Um, how do you define that? And uh I want to talk about examples who you've known in, uh, you know, in, in current life system. My definition of it, I'm actually getting a bit clearer about it over time, which is kind of fun. It's, you know, oftentimes I talk with founders or, or CEOs or executive companies and they think about what they need to do. They theorize about what they need to do, but they don't do it. Right. And my question is always like, well, why don't you do it? Why don't you try today? Put five people on it and see what happens, right? And that actually, that scares a lot of them when you start talking about things like that. Like, just try it. Who cares? If it doesn't work, then you'll change it. And I, and I think that that mentality of like, try, get it done. Let's see how it works. Let's move forward. Like, that's the thing that I look for people in the most. And that I, what I think is really like the savagery there, which is like, it doesn't matter. Let's freaking work. Let's get through it. Let's get it done. I genuinely think, I know some, sometimes people get mad at me for saying this, so, you know. But I think working hard is a competitive advantage. <laughs> oh, let's take a step back here. Oh, my goodness. Are you sure? Like, this is this is going to go viral uh, right YouTube's there. going to put a disclaimer. Yeah. The top. yeah. <laughs> this, this content contains references to working hard. I'm telling you, I yeah. think working hard is a competitive advantage. And I think if you can outwork people and if you move fast, you're going to just win a market. Yeah, like, you don't need to be the brightest person. You just need to, like, combine working hard and being there for your customers and talking to them and you'll get there. And I think like we, we have something internally that we're very proud of, which is the idea of uh, exceeding expectations. Um, so getting stuff done to 
a step further, right? In a way that uh, most people would have just left it, but you just take it uh, one step further. Like if you combine working hard, exceeding expectation, that's that's kind of like the ultimate combo for savagery, I think, in general. And and who are some savage founders you know? Yeah, let's name some names. Have you heard of the company called DLoco? So the founder itself is a savage. Uh, I'll tell you that. Uh, I think Sebastian from Klarna, uh, if you've talked to him, I think he's a savage. <laughs> Well, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. So I uh, spent some time at, uh, uh, at Twitter recently with Elon Musk. And uh, and I I think he fits that bucket. And I actually think you're making a very profound point, which and is often underappreciated where, uh, and this is not just for startups. I think it's true for any company, any system, any organization, where you're often stuck, where you don't know what the right path forward is. And there are smart people in the room who have opposing data points, opposing pros and cons. There are reasonable paths on both sides. I've empirically found that the people who wind up winning are the folks who are just like, let's go try something, right? And the people who don't wind up winning, uh, and by winning, I mean, gain market share, you know, launch a successful product, are the folks who are like, let's go get more data. Let's go think about this more. Let's analyze this more. And the challenge is sometimes, I think people think that the cost of doing something is often a lot more than it turns out to be. Most decisions can be reversed. You can launch a product and you can say, you know, hey, this didn't work out. It's fine. You can, um, you know, um, go in a particular direction. You can unwind it. There are very few things which you're locked into uh, forever. But doing something like pushing against the universe is going to give you data. It's going to tell you what the market is like, how your team operates. And you're going to know so much more than another slide deck review in two more weeks. Most people think that only applies early stage, right? Like early stage, you got to try, try to go. And I think actually the most successful founders early stage are the one that try and and fail and until they get it or then spend years tweaking a feature on their product to hope they get it but later on i actually think that still applies right and i think you know last week's with uh, what happened with svb is at least for me within deal is a strong show of us still having that right like onboarding hundreds of companies creating slack channels with them and getting them going on payroll and you're finding a way legally to be able to work with them and like, you know my internal team was like well you're crazy let's think about it etc but then you know the whole team kind of rallied and said like great we're just going to do our best and like that that is exactly the definition of savagery to me, and that's what gets you to to push forward. I think that's great. To me, I would also like in my my definition, and I would extend it to rejection of rules and status quo. Um, and uh, you know, you always you kind of come in to be like, oh, you know, what happens if you touch this thing? Will this topple over? Kind of thing. And I've often find this like archetype of people who are like, eh, we'll just like throw stuff out there and see what happens. And you know, screw the rules and let's let's like keep going. To your point, people who work obscenely hard, like working really hard and are like really proud of it and kind of wear it. And, you know, we often, uh, even the last episode, I think when we talked about hard work, somebody left a comment being like, but what about burnout? And I'm like, well, you know, every, everyone knows their own limits. It's not to be like, everybody has to like work to the brink of death. Like that's not, you know, the thing. But for me, it's like, the thing that you do, are you really proud of what you're doing? And if you are, then you will find a way to like put in the effort that you think is needed for it to be successful. And for me, that is like kind of a superset definition of what it is. To and be that's savage. super important when you're a distributed company, actually. Your point is super important because when you're always on, right, specifically in a company that's fully distributed, so people are all around, there's always something happening at the company. 
knowing your own limits, it's something that's super important. And when we think about trust and trusting people to do their best work, we trust them to know their limits. We trust them to understand like when is the right time for them to take time off? When do they need to log off? And, you know, in a way we, we shift that responsibility to them, but at the same time, they're owner of their own destiny on that front. And we're here to support them to make sure they do the right thing. And I think that's a big part of being able to run a, a remote team, right? It's like, trusting people to take care of themselves and to prioritize the wrong thing and when we can putting the right things in place too. One of the questions for remote culture which comes up is when you're in an office, you sometimes have the intangible conversations. Sometimes, you know, you're on the way to the bathroom or the few minutes before a meeting. I often can sometimes walk into an office and you can tell the mood of everyone there. Um, and that is feedback uh, for everybody, right? Like managers, CEOs, uh, um, anybody at all. And some companies have struggled with losing this in uh, all remote, all Slack, all Zoom environment where you can't actually tell when somebody is slightly unhappy. Uh, that person may not be getting mentorship or that person, like, the way you can tell the moment you walk into an office space. And you're, you're also not getting these intangible conversations. You're getting these 30 minutes scheduled Zoom conversations uh, happen. And how do you think about like the feedback loop for culture you know one of the reasons our hr leader comes from a very very strong hrbp background is because of that exactly right i think you know on the people operation side on the tech side you know we're building tools that deal for this so we're pretty good on this so the one thing that was very important for me is being able to create the environment for people to be able to speak up and from performance reviews to being done really well so doubling down on the hrbp side of uh, of our the leadership team and taking that as a big strength was super important for us Second, and I don't have experience with offices, but I, I do think that there is a con into having everyone into offices. Sure, there's conversations that happen that are important, but I think there's also a lot of conversations that are less important and that you know might take a lot of the time of uh, of the team and distract them from the goal as well. So, like, I like the fact that you know at, at Dill we're very nice to each other. We spend as much time as we can, but like you said, like it's thirty minutes Zoom call there, thirty minutes Zoom call there, and we're not just. I just think that when you're spending all day next to people every year, there's more room and surface area for errors and for problems as well. And I think that actually, like the fact that we're fully distributed definitely helps with that too. I want to switch gears just a little bit. Um, you know, again, I was doing some homework on you uh, because I was very familiar with the deal, but less about your background. And one of the themes which came about is that, like a lot of others, you know, you're going to playing video games, but you're also going to try to adapt lot of that uh, influence in how you work, you know, how you function. Kind of curious about, well, let's start with something. Favorite game that you spent the most time playing as a kid and then how it has maybe influenced you? As a kid? Uh, well, I played so many. Uh, I'd say Age of Empire or League of Legends. I spent a lot of my time on this. <laughs> we used to work at Microsoft, so AOE was a huge Age thing. Age of Empire is big. We just had Mark Merrill on the show for our I love Mark. League of Legends Mark is game. great. I mean, you know, League of yeah. Legends will definitely shaped it. Mark is savage. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the thing is, actually, I actually think my time, you know, I grew up in the esports revolution and that gaming uh, and environment. Actually, you know, one of the reasons people always used to tell me in the same way, like, why do you like watching Twitch all day? Like, you know, when I was young, my big cousins used to play and I actually couldn't play because they were the ones holding the remote. So I was just watching. So I'm used to doing that. To some extent, like if you think about it, online, you play with people, you make friends. I made friends throughout my life online that I never met in the same mindset that like I work with people that I've never met, right? So I actually did, do think that this influenced me a lot to be much more accepting of like working with people 
I've never met in person and trusting them in the way that you trust people when you're playing league on a five on five to some extent. Right. So uh, I actually do think like gaming in so many ways, like shaped, well, first I'm an engineer. So I think that helped as well, but like shaped my way of thinking and, and solving problems. Right. If you play an uncharted or if you play like a legend of Zelda, right. Like that definitely shapes your, your brain to try to find like the little things on the side that are hidden. So you get that treasure or stuff like that. Plus there's just the collaborative aspect of things and the ability to just work with people, to play with people all over the world without knowing them just ties very well into the generation that I think we have today. You know, I actually didn't know about your video game influence. So you might have to be in this list, but my most notable example of a CEO influenced by video games is Toby of Shopify because, um, you know, I think he has deeply integrated video games into how he thinks and works. So, for example, um, you know, uh, he will tell you that the lesson he learned from StarCraft, uh, which holds true for companies, is the fundamental unit you have is time. And, you know, uh, units of time is the most important thing. And how do you optimize it? And all the way to his teams are called, I think, upgrade packs. Uh, I, uh, there's lots of stuff where Toby's like, I, I, I know... Uh, even today, I think in Shopify, one of the best ways to get noticed and hired at Shopify is to prove you're an excellent StarCraft player. A lot of my friends from uni I met through being in the League of Legends team of, uh, of Imperial College um, are actually working at Deal today and part of the team. There we go. I That's like awesome. it. We had Mark Merrill on the show. So we got to like nerd out about uh, LOL, but we also got to talk about like yeah. Arcane and everything else. You see a set of founders who are like so obsessed with video games and it kind of shapes. Uh, and I think, you know, to your point on Twitch. I say the same thing about Shriram. So Shriram games a lot, especially late night. And I'll just like sit next to him on my laptop and I'll just like watch him play. And I'm like, I invented Twitch before we all knew what Twitch was. And I, yeah. I used to say like, you know, even like a decade ago, we yeah. used to sit down and just, uh, I just uh, watch Arty was the first, you know, uh, chat person yelling at me, right? Like telling, <laughs> you know, uh, you're full of it. Um, okay. So the other really interesting thing I want to ask you, and you're really one of the few people with insight into this is... Uh, you now have to deal with employees and contractors in so many different countries. Kind of curious about what are sort of varying legal uh, quirks or things that you have run into. Maybe it's some examples, right? Like because I, I, you know, I, I've been amazed by some of the stories I've heard. Like, what are some of the weirdest or you know most like. Uh, uh, you know, unintuitive things that, you know, oh, uh, you've I have run so into. many, you know, I don't even need to go that deep because I see it every other week with founders. Um, so I'm French, so I know European laws very well, but a lot of uh, American founders don't know European laws very well. Um, and, you know, they always try to be really nice to their employees. Like, I'm not going to give them a probation period. You know, I'm going to let them work. And when you're looking at countries like the Netherlands or France or Germany, actually, I had a case last week in Germany, you cannot just terminate someone and tell them like, goodbye, you know, like you do it in the US, then, uh, you know, you need to pay severance, you can go to court, it's going to take time, it's going to cost a lot of money. And I have seen so many cases, so many cases where people just think they're just going to turn up on Monday and say, hey, here's your two weeks notice and good luck. And like, and that's actually like a big part of why we are kind of like the best on the market in what we do. Over the last six months, we had to have a lot of companies do layoff, right? And I think uh, we, we kind of, had in on behalf of companies because in, in the employer of record model we are the employer right like those are our employees on behalf of our customers um, we ended up firing i think north of like six thousand plus people in some of the most complicated geos you can think of so i i have a list of horror stories for you there and uh, i think it's that's actually super important and like if there's anything 
that I really hope I, I, I can get through even in, in this podcast is like when you're thinking about hiring globally, you need to understand the world is a complex place and local labor laws is different from a country to another. So talk to us or talk to someone that understands before you do it for sure. I mean, I can also see how it's like totally exacerbated with uh, layoffs uh, over the last few months. And, uh, you know, I think every every company we are seeing, every big company is like going through it. And uh, a lot of these companies have global presence, but don't have a good understanding of lo- the local laws in each market and each country. So I can totally see how this just like balloons out of proportion and just becomes like a really big chaotic process to go take care of and deal with. Well, one, um, one thing you should know, here, fun fact, yeah. in yeah. the Netherlands, yeah. people can ask for up to nine years of compensation. You should try to find it. Yes. Nine years. <laughs> wow. Uh, has it happened? Wow. Uh, does it I've happen? seen does it people happen? asking for it and then, you know, you end up settling at like uh, four to five or six months. But uh, when you're a founder and you hear, I, I want nine years of severance, you go, okay, uh, it's going to be very hard. Wow. Okay. I mean, particularly given the fact that most companies, when they do layoffs, they're probably not in a great financial position anyway. Right? Like it's it's kind of difficult to be like, well... And pay me for nine years. How, yeah, how you, does it work? you know, this is the law. Yeah. One thing I learned, um, thank God my, my, you know, we have a pretty big legal team, like 50 plus people, plus a ton of external lawyers in, in every country. We have uh, internal lawyers too. Uh, I learned that mass layoffs actually have a, also have different regulations than just regular layoffs. And, you know, when suddenly a company comes, actually when suddenly many companies come to you and say, we want to hire like X amount of people in that country and that accumulates to hundreds in one country, then the regulations are completely different. It's it's crazy. It's actually yeah. kind of similar to the Warren Act and you know other similar. That's structures right. Here. That's yeah. right. Um, deals basically, in my view at least, has come out of nowhere. It came out of left field, and then pretty soon everybody started talking about it. Right, like, you know, through the pandemic, you basically grew and grew and grew as we had like remote presence, remote offices, everybody else scaling uh, from different parts of the uh, of the world. When you talk to other people. I'm sure people ask you, what is the secret to basically scaling a company this quickly? How do you grow so fast? And it's not just the culture part, but just the logistics. And how do you just get a startup from like, hey, we get out of YC, hit the grades running, and then you're just like, you know, off to the races. We still have a lot to learn and I still have a lot to learn. But I think a couple of things. First, for so you so the scale itself what i i do think was pretty impressive where we went from 4 million to 57 and then 57 to almost 300 million in the in the last two years right so and we went from you know, i think 50 employees to 2500 employees right so pretty pretty heavy growth on, on our side and i think we learned a lot a few things that we were lucky to do right um so when my ceo joined his mindset which was very important was build everything you see as if it was going to scale 100x. And when you build for automation, you build for scale. And you know, there's as much automation as you can do. And some automation takes time, specifically when you know we have 450 plus bank accounts around the world and we don't understand legal in every country. Like, you know, there's parts that are hard to automate. But if your mindset is always, well, what happens if 100x the users that you have today like happen to be using exactly that? Then you just start building differently, right? Then you need to, you have much less technical depth and you have much less like operational depth in terms of how you work. So that, I think that's super important. Um, the second thing is generally, I, I do think being distributed helped us grow that fast, right? Like the fact that we were able to quickly hire talent in some regions where a lot less companies were competing for that talent. We just were able to scale up the company much quickly. If I told you go and hire 2,000 people in San Francisco tomorrow, 
you know, you're going to have a hard time doing that. So I think that definitely played in our hands quite a bit. And, you know, the fact that we are our first customers helped quite a bit as well. And then the last part is, I think we saw a, a super interesting market where we could really help people. And we went pretty savage about it. Like our go-to-market and our growth, we just, you know, we grew really fast. We saw this market and we just said, it's time, it's time to double down. And the thing I think that's important specifically for companies as they kind of go through this is we had consistent growth, like every month, 20, 30%, month over month growth. And we're watching that for that. And there's a point where like when you see that happen and you start raising the right funds to do it, it's just time to hit the go button and really like take over the market. And I think we, we did a decent job at it. We are coming pretty close to the end of time. Um, one thing, you know, a lot of our listeners are founders themselves or want to be founders uh, they're pretty widely distributed. Given that, you know, Shriram and I came from India, we moved here a decade or so ago. Um, we have this like widespread audience of people who are like in tech or want to get into tech, want to get into starting a company. So if you had to talk to founders or people who want to be founders and give them like, hey, here are the few things that if I were you, I would think about advice for founders. What would that be? The common theme I see in most people uh, whether or not they'll make for successful founder is a different story. But I see a lot of people, like you were saying earlier, theorizing and collecting data and thinking about it. And, you know, and, and it's, I understand it's hard to work when you have another job, but I think if you're very passionate about something, you should just go and build it. There's so many tools and so much available out there that you can build an MVP in like a couple of days and you don't need to be a genius at coding, right? Like no code tools get you very, very far nowadays. And I think most of the founders that I think are the most successful in the same mindsets are the ones that try really fast and see if it works. And most of the ones that just end up wishing and you know, the wishful thinking of like, I want to build this are the ones that just find excuses for not doing things. So, uh, you know, I come back from work, I'm so tired or, you know, in the weekend, it's my time for me to rest. Like, look, if you want to be a founder, like the next few years of your life will be very complicated and there's sacrifices you need to make and understand that go as hard as you can, go as fast as you can. And that's when you build something great. Here's one last thing which we try and ask everybody, um, which is, uh, let us say you're time traveling to few decades out in the future, uh, many, maybe many decades out in the future, and you're looking back upon this time of your life, of deals, uh, existence, what would make you happy? What would you want you to have done? What would you want deal to have done? What would you look back upon and say, well, that was job well done? Yeah, usually people ask me if you go backwards in time and my answer is always buy Bitcoin. So I'm actually going to need to think for that one. <laughs> so uh, I think, look, there's two things that are very core to Deal's mission that you know I'm very, very close to at, at heart. And I think this is, this is why I wake up every day, which is one, the concept of helping hundreds of millions of people get to work for the best companies in the world. So if you come to me in like many decades and tell me this is like a significant amount of people that are able to work for the best companies that are able to you know, stay in their country if they want to and still have the same amount of opportunities. And if we are able to impact so many lives, then I think we would have built something that's generational and that's something that truly serves its mission. The second part, which is more like very much a 360 in, in who it matters to, but I actually, you know, when I look at HR in general and, you know, HR people are, are amazing and they, they built, they were still foundational over the last few years, right? Like with COVID happening and then I need to hire a lot and then layoffs, right? Like so many things happen. The, the tools that they have in place, like their end users, and I'm not too sure what you guys are using internally, but the, the end users usually hate HR tools. Like I've never seen someone come and tell me like, I freaking love my HR tool, it's working so well. And it's, But you know, it's where you get hired. It's where you sign your employment agreements, it's where you get your pay slips. It's where you could have, you know, additional perks. And I think there is, there is this 
concept where like building the first HR brand that people love and that, you know, in 10 years from now, I want you to come to me and say, I got hired for deal and I freaking love it. Like if we can build something like that, then I think we would have really changed the world of HR and the perspective that a, that people have on HR tool, the same way the perspective that a lot of people had on HR leaders change over the last few years and they realize how foundational they are for their company. I, I love my HR tool. Now that is uh, a big aspirational goal. Like I, I'll be like, oh my gosh, okay, that's that's a tough one. But I I, I wouldn't bet against you. Alex, this was such a pleasure. And I just want to say, you know, um, just been amazing to watch what you folks have done in such a short period of time. Been Being able to be a small part of it myself, uh, you know, just from the firm's perspective, but also just over the last weekend, you know, seeing you swing into action helps so many and uh yeah you know, w- you know i also think you know the world needs more founders like you uh, and i say that from a perspective of uh, we've believed in talent being distributed people being distributed and it, talent is not always packed in like one place in one city and uh, we'd like to think we are examples of that building what you're doing in deal you're making that a reality like you know it's it's one thing to be talented and live in a city it's another to like get spotted get hired you know have economic means to like thrive and grow and deal is making that possible so thanks for all the work no, that you do you. you're true savage uh, can always be more can always be more trust me <laughs> <laughs> on that note all right amazing thank you so much